Well, this morning we continue our series, Differentiate. And Differentiate has been this study through what is often called the Sermon on the Mount. It is this unique and very extended sermon from Jesus that calls us to a different way of being human. This morning, Les, as you were talking and to the kids, I remember this story of a guy that was fishing, and he caught something so big and excited him, but his fishing rod got away from him, and he lost his fishing rod. Sometimes when things like that happen, something we value so much is taken away from us. Something that is really just stuff uh, gets taken away from us. Uh, We become sad and we lament. And uh, all of a sudden we are faced with this reality of do we own our stuff or does our stuff own us? And this week I was beginning to think about that question as I looked around my house. And it's hard to believe that I've only been in East Pete for a little over two years in our house that we uh, are living in. But I've already amassed more stuff than I had when I moved here, right? Before I lived in rental properties and so I never wanted to amass much stuff because I knew I'd move. And, and it is amazing in a two-year time, I'm sure, how much stuff even you have gained in your life worth you have collected. All of us have some stuff that we love to collect, whether it be fishing rods or baseball cards or whatever it is in your life that you collect. We all have something. Do we own our stuff or does our stuff own us? And that is exactly what we are going to be talking about this morning through the lens of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And as we continue this series, Differentiate, we can say Differentiate is our seven-week study through a collection of Jesus' teaching found in the book of Matthew that challenge, remind, and equip us to live in a differentiated way in our neighborhoods, in our spheres of influence, and we might even add, in our relationships. So far we've looked at truth-telling and oaths, revenge and grudges, how loving our neighbors includes loving our enemies. And last week we talked about how God requires and desires the highest integrity in the way that we live lives of charity, fasting, and prayer. There are elements of the Sermon of the Mount and other Gospels, but no other book of the Bible seems to capture them and captivate them and contagiously tell them as Matthew does. See, for Matthew, as I've said every week, and I want to tell you again, the teaching and healing ministry is very important and central to Matthew's narrative, as well as where he sees God fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. As we explore this passage this morning, it's important that as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, that we explore, we understand, and know these passages that Matthew says is central to our faith. This morning we look at an especially challenging teaching from Jesus. A a teaching that addresses our money and our stuff. Those two areas of our lives that are very private and that we don't like to talk about. As we read this passage from Matthew 6, 19 through 24, I imagine, uh, I want you to imagine sitting on the mountainside with me. Picture that Jesus has asked us to go up onto this mountainside. We are sitting in this green, lush grass. Jesus is just a little farther up from us, sitting on the hill, teaching. We're kind of snacking on some Cheez-Its. 
and watching Jesus as the wind blows down the hill, the birds begin to sing, and the blue sky makes us feel warm as this young and charismatic teacher continues to teach us on the laws of his kingdom. As he just sits up the hill from us, it's almost as if we can touch him, and we are shocked, and, and we are captivated by each sentence that he says. A few, sent, a few weeks ago, we watched Jesus from this mountainside call his followers to pursue perfection, to be perfect as God is perfect, to be perfect in the Father's ways. And in that part of the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus now, in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus begin to talk about those things in our lives, those everyday things in our lives, those realities that we all deal with, our money and our stuff being part of that, that have the potential to distract or divide our loyalty to the King and His kingdom. In some ways, the cultural view of Jesus' day on wealth and stuff was not much different than ours. In their culture, your wealth and your stuff is really what made you. There was great disparity between those that have what we call in our culture the 1% and those that don't have. And those uh, haves and have-nots were getting even farther apart. However, those who do have almost seem to be in their own plane of existence. They believe that somehow their extra money, their extra stuff, made them extra special. That's the culture in which Jesus is teaching. Those that had extra money and extra stuff thought that they were extra special. And they were extra special because they believed that their extra stuff, their extra money, was actually an extra blessing from God. So they saw their blessing as God's blessing on their lives. In fact, Michael J. Wilkins reflects on the cultural importance of wealth in this way. He says, material wealth was important to the people of Israel since it was often seen as a sign of God's blessing and the reward of obedience to him. So the culture which Jesus is talking and giving this sermon views God's blessing through the way he poured out money and stuff. In fact, listen to this early Jewish teaching from an ancient rabbi that is way in the past now, but it would have been this general understanding in which people lived by. A man should always teach his son an easy craft and let him pray to whom riches and possessions belong. For there is no craft wherein there is not both poverty and wealth. For poverty comes not from a man's craft, nor riches from a man's craft, but all is according to his merit." So even here, it's taught and believed that riches are the sign of one's merit, what they put forward. It's, it is a sign of one's importance, and it's God's blessing on their lives. It's not their job. You find people that are poor plumbers, and you find people that are rich plumbers. But what makes somebody really important and really rich is their merit, what they do for God. And God, poor, who controls the riches, pours that out of them. It's a mindset. In today's time, what do we call that? What do we call teaching like this? Prosperity gospel, right? God longs to bless you. He longs to pour out his riches on you. We call that the prosperity gospel. However, that reality that probably most of us would argue against and have problems with uh, actually has infiltrated our church and all churches much more than we'd likely want to admit. 
we take strength, power, and encouragement, and even safety in our wealth and stuff. We all take investment, and we all take our wealth and our stuff as encouragement and safety. And to be honest, we work hard to provide for our families, for our recreation lives, for a certain quality of life, and for the quality of life that we want in our retirement. We tend to look at those who don't have money as not just working enough. We tend to look at those that don't have money as not spending it right. We tend to look at those who have uh, not done well with their craft or their job as not knowing how to invest right because in all honesty, they probably just didn't have somebody show them. Because if they did, and they were good with it, then God and life would bless them as we are blessed. That kind of mindset has infiltrated Western churches. Folks, that is still prosperity gospel. And that is exactly what Jesus is coming against in this passage. In this passage, Jesus counteracts that deceptive belief, that accumulation of wealth for one's own sake is important, that it is safe, and that it is blessing. Wealth is also a false sense of security. It is not the thing that's supposed to be most important in our lives. And by all means, it is an inaccurate assessment, as we will see in this passage, of one's spiritual life. Now listen in. Picture yourself on the mountain. You know your culture, because it's not much like theirs. But we listen to Jesus as he teaches. Do not store up treasures for yourselves on earth where moths and vermins destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, then how great is that darkness? For no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This morning, I want us to practice paying attention to this text. What Jesus begins to address is really the heart. He is talking about the core of a person's existence and being. His teaching is about addressing our real inner person. Our heart is the source of our spiritual lives our emotional lives, and our psychological lives, right? Heart, body, and mind. This is what Jesus is talking about. Earlier in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus already points out to them that their heart is a source of their deeds. Where a heart is dictates if our motives or our actions are good, they're praising God, they're worshiping God, or if they are self-centered and evil. What Jesus begins to explain in this passage is that the things that we place the highest value on, those things that we value 
more than anything, have the ability to direct, gauge, and dictate where our heart goes. Jesus wants his followers to understand that where we place our values, there our heart will go, and where our heart will go, there goes our actions. I'm going to say that again. Where we place our values, now picture what you value. Where you place your values, there your heart will go. Where your heart will go, so will your actions. Followers of Jesus who are pursuing his righteousness must solely value God himself. He is telling those of us on the mountainside, our money and our stuff has the temptation, the potential, and the power to be what we value most in life, much more than anything else. Not all of us wants to be famous. Some of us are okay not being famous. Not all of us want to be well-traveled. Some of us like never leaving Lancaster County. But the one thing in life that we all fall tempted to is money and stuff. We all have money and stuff. We must examine what we value. And Jesus is telling us that God does not share space. He does not share space in our hearts. The NLT study Bible echoes this thought. The term for money, traditionally mammon, is an Aramaic term for profits or material possessions. And since God tolerates no rivals, I love that language, he tolerates no rivals, Jesus repeatedly warns of the danger of accumulating riches which can be idle. We must trust God to meet our needs. Now think about this. Rewards are important to us. Every grocery store we have has a rewards card. We love the discount it gives us at Turkey Hill, right? But the greatest treasure is what the Father gives in heaven. Our ambition should be being rich in God, not rich in worldly things. Money is just one of the many areas that actually has the potential to also create anxiety in our life. And Jesus wants his disciples and his followers to know that their hope and comfort cannot be in their money and stuff. And ironically, the chapter that follows this, the passage that follows this, is on worry and anxiety. He wants them to realize that their hope and their comfort cannot be in their money and in their stuff, but only in his kingdom and the future that he has prepared for his people. Right? It's only that which is yet to come. I think Michael J. Wilkins sums it up best. If Jesus' disciples keep their hearts fully focused on the Father in heaven, then all of the other treasures of this world will pale in comparison. This will set a trajectory for healthy discipleship, including one's priorities, excuse me, motives, righteous deeds, ambitions, security, personal self-worth, and relationship. N.T. Wright agrees. He said, this passage is about priorities, and the central priority is God himself. In this passage, there's five things that Jesus says to those who are listening that I want to break down. In this passage, he tells them to not store up treasures on earth where moss and vermin destroy. Now, this is an important concept to understand. Think with me. How can you tell when somebody has money? How can you tell? They have stuff, but what do they especially have? They have nice cars, and they have nice, right? You can tell when somebody is wealthy because they have nice cars and they have nice clothes. It was the same thing except the cars in Jesus' time. They 
in the Eastern culture were very much a people that were driven by showing their wealth in clothes. It's not much different than what we know. Growing up, I know I heard this, and I know you heard it too. Well, that's his Sunday car. You guys remember that? What did you drive on Sunday? Your best car. It's still the same pride that Jesus is talking about here. And, hey, I noticed that you're in your Sunday best. What? What? Sunday car and Sunday best. That mindset, keep that in mind, because that's what Jesus is talking about here. An individual's wealth in the East was shown and known by the way that he dressed. Wealth was known and shown by fine, elaborate clothes. It's really a sense of pride. Have you ever seen the Mummers Parade in Philly on New Year's Day? Has anyone ever seen it? There's these fun, fancy brigade, and they wear fancy clothes that are all kind of shiny. And when I think about rich people in the East, I tend to think of it like that. They flaunted it with pride. Growing up saying, we heard these things, right? Sunday car, Sunday's vest. But really, these are damning and wrong concepts and exactly what Jesus is addressing. The kingdom community, the one he's talking to, the one which church will be an expression of, is not to flaunt it if you got it. You're not to flaunt it if you got it. No, we aren't to be proud with the way we dress or the car we drive. God wants us as we are, as what is in our heart. Doing all those things is automatically not a value of worship, but of self-merit. So, don't put your money in nice clothes. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't put your money in nice clothes. Because, in all honesty, it's really not wealth. Because all it takes is a moth to come in and eat at it. Well, why don't you buy some mothballs, right? Jesus is saying it's still a waste of money. You're not supposed to flaunt it if you got it. Now, the second part of that statement is just as important, where vermin destroy. Interesting enough, the, the word there in Greek is brosis, which actually means to be eaten away. So the King James and other uh, versions sometimes will also use um, rust there, depending on what you're reading from. Now, another way that people showed their wealth in Jesus' time were they had their stuff stored. Those who had land, those who could hire husbandry people to farm for them, they would have great barns. And we all know that um, those with the biggest barns have the most money, right? That is the culture. And so it was this proud thing that, man, I have more corn and grain stored than anyone, and I am wealthy. But Jesus says, what kind of indicator of wealth is that? What kind of indicator of God's blessing is that? Because all it takes is a rat problem. And all of a sudden, it seems that that guy is not blessed by God anymore. A man's wealth could be taken by him by just this little rat infestation. Now, in this passage, Jesus also tells them this. He says, not to store up treasures on earth where thieves break in and steal, now, Israel wasn't a culture of banks, right? People weren't putting their money in the bank. They weren't doing what my grandma did and putting them in baggies and glass jars and putting them in the freezer. If you guys do that, it's not a good idea. Everyone does that, right? They didn't have credit unions. They didn't have investors. They lived and breathed in baked clay houses that they put straw and cow dung in for warmth. People found creative ways to keep all of their life savings hidden in homes made out of clay and dung. The reality is this, that all it takes is for one person to break in or tunnel into their house to find that thing that you think is creative, that little freezer spot, 
and take everything you have. Now, ironically, the authorized version of the Bible uses the word break through rather than break in, and that would be more true to the original word there because Jesus is very much thinking about thieves that would know how to just tunnel their hand in just enough and grab what you got. They knew it was under the mattress of straw, right? They believed wealth was a sign of God's blessing. But what does it take to have all, what, what does it mean when malls, rats, and thieves can take that from you? What kind of blessing from God is that? For us, if wealth is a sign of God's blessing, then what does it mean when scammers, bad investments, robbers, and bad decisions take that from us? If we are so lucky to be blessed by our wealth, why can that be taken so easy from us? And why are people so easily trying to? Jesus is warning us against pleasures and spiritual indicators that can wear out, that can be stolen or eroded away. Jesus goes on to tell them, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever we place treasure for us, it will steal our focus, and that will steal our heart, and that will steal our actions. The idea of treasures in heaven was not a foreign concept to these people. It was famous in Jewish culture. It really meant two things. It meant that they believed that the deeds of kindness in which a man practiced, especially in their lives with charity, would come back to them as an eternal reward. They believed that someday their kindness would come back in kind of a karmic form. They also began to associate this idea with character. They believed that character is found in the center of one's knowledge of the law, his care for his neighbor, and one's good works. That was considered treasure in which they were allowed to legalistically pursue. However, Jesus tells them a reality that is much, much different. Whatever an individual values or focuses on, it will lead his heart to it. The heart dictates who the person is, and that dictates what he does. The Jewish culture had defined God's blessing on one's importance through earthly values. And if that we value is earthly, then we will only get earthly rewards. Jesus goes on to remind them that the eye is the lamp of the body. And this was too an easily understood Jewish concept. We have similar sayings. We say, the eyes are the window to one's heart, to, to one's souls. When someone asks us how they look, and we don't think they look that nice, we tell them what? You have nice eyes. Right? You've done it. Jewish culture knew that where you looked is where you walked. Where you looked is where you walked. Where you looked is where you walked. And if you were looking to earthly things, it will walk you in that direction. Jesus knew that these people were to be the light on the hill. They knew that they were to walk in the light. They were to be all things of the light. And all things of the world were earthly. That was darkness. Those who didn't walk with God walked in darkness. They were to be the light. They knew that Rome was the darkness. They didn't want to be anything like Rome. And all of a sudden, Jesus draws this line in the sand where he compares them more likely to the empire than his kingdom. Interesting to think about. Jesus wants to make sure that they understand what they have used as spiritual indicators and values are actually those same things that are liked and used by every other culture, every other individual, and every other worldly empire. They are not values, indicators, or focuses of the kingdom. William Barclay says, prejudice can distort our vision, 
Jealousy can distort our vision, and self-conceit can distort our vision. These are all the ambitions of our money and stuff. Now lastly, Jesus tells them, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. We all know this saying if you've grown up in a church. We've said it. We've repeated it. We've tried to tell ourselves it. And I think this is my favorite part of the passage, not because it is so well known. It's because of the impact of what Jesus is actually saying here. The word for serve is dulian, which is another form of doulos, which is slave. Serve here means to be a slave or enslaved by something. Now, some of you are already saying, I'm no one's slave, right? Some of you are thinking that already. I'm not enslaved by anything. There's no way my stuff enslaves me. There's no way my money enslaves me. But that's exactly what Jesus' audience, to picture us on the hill, would have been saying and thinking in their minds and maybe even yelling and throwing at Jesus like, what do you mean we're not a slave to anything? Even more fun, the word for master is curious, which, which is actually meaning absolute ownership. Those things that have enslaved you, are your absolute owners. Jesus is asking, do you own your stuff or does your stuff own you? What about you? Do you own your money and your stuff? Or does your money and your stuff own you? You see, in his time, a slave had no rights of their own. Every aspect of his life belonged to his master. Our, our money and our stuff can be the worst of slave masters. We can never have enough money. We can never have enough stuff. We need to make that million-dollar mark. We need to make that retirement plan just be enough. It is to us that reality that we have become slaves who are enslaved to needing more. We need more. That is our enslavement. Jesus wants us to choose God as our master, not the slaves of earthly masters. And a few verses later, Jesus declares what the right way of living is. And he reads that in Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these other things will be added to you as well. How do we do that? How do we take something away from this passage that teaches us that? Well, we must be careful that we do not see our achievement and acquiring of money and stuff as a sign of God's blessing. It's not. Moth can take it. Rat can take it. A thief can take it. It's not God's blessing. Likewise, we cannot use our money and our possessions as a sign of health in, or, and our si- at, or, as a sign of health in other people or as a reason to look down on others. Well, they just haven't been as blessed as much or they've done something wrong. God's not blessing them. Guess what? God's blessing doesn't come through money. It doesn't come through stuff. That person you are judging might actually get a better view of God than who you think he is. There should be in us a desire to not accumulate money or stuff which are earthly and have no eternal benefits. They are enslavers. Those things that we work to enslave us. Those things that we work for enslave us. They become our masters. The only investment which we should treasure in those things for the God's kingdom, our heart will be where our heart and focus occupies, where we value. There our heart will go and there our actions will go. And we must be careful to think, to not think, that we can be holy and still value other treasures. Where we look is the direction in which we will lead and live. Practicing accountability, and I think this is the most important. 
Practicing accountability and self-examination of our feelings and thoughts will help us to not value our money or our stuff over God. Pump the brakes every once in a while and check yourself. Right? Hey, is my stuff owning me or am I owning my stuff? Because God does not share space in our hearts. If you take away one point, remember this. God does not share space in our hearts. The sign of a true blessing of God isn't found in your bank account, in the closets of your home, in your basement, in your vehicles, in your health, in your retirement plan, or your Sunday's best. It is found in your loving service and your good work to others, your charity to the poor, and in the ways that you invest your life for the kingdom alone. And this is what will bring the greatest reward. But what drives your ambition in life? Do you own your stuff or does your stuff own you? Can you be content with what you have? Is God enough for you? As the worship team comes forward to close us out, I invite you to ask God that. Can you remind me that you are enough for me? And as they come forward, I'm going to read this passage once again from the message. I'm going to read it prophetically over us as a challenge. Do not hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths, corroded by rust or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where you put your treasures, the place that you want to be, and it's where you will end up being. Where do you want to be this morning?